China's influence is rising, but how is it changing the countries around it? From Radio Free Europe, I'm Reid Standish, and this is Talking China and Eurasia, a podcast about how Beijing is changing the balance of power. Is it the West and the rest? After a year of war in Ukraine, its ripple effects continue to go global, showing a stark divide between how the West views the future of the conflict and how the rest of the world, with countries like China and India taking a very different view of the war. I'm Reid Standish, joining you live from Radio Free Europe Studios in Prague. On today's episode, I'm joined by Charles Dunce, fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and the author of Defeating Dictators, How Democracy Can Prevail in the Age of the Strongman. We'll be taking the pulse of the global order after what has been a very busy news week that included trips by global leaders at the Munich Security Conference, Wang Yi's Europe trip, including a stopover in Moscow, and Joe Biden's surprise visit to Kyiv. Together, we'll be looking at what all of this means as the world looks to be increasingly divided between democracies and autocracies. Charles, thanks a lot for joining me today. I want to begin with unpacking Joe Biden's Europe trip, including an unannounced stop in Ukraine and also what was a very fiery speech in Warsaw, where he reaffirmed American and Western support for Kyiv and quite clearly framed the war in Ukraine as part of this wider standoff between democracies and autocracies. Do you think he got this message across? And what do you make of this kind of framing? Well, thanks for having me, Reid. It's really great to be on with, with you and with all the listeners. And just kind of starting with the Biden trip. Yeah, I, I think the framing makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it makes a lot of sense to folks who live in the West, who work in the West, or grew up in the West. But I, I don't think the message reverberates as positively, even in global South democracies like India, like Indonesia, that are much more concerned about the practical fallout of the war. The concern for them is high fertilizer prices, uh, high gas prices, high food prices. You think about somewhere like Egypt, where Egypt can no longer afford wheat, essentially, because of the Russian war and because of the export controls. So I think Biden's message was really strong and was well received in probably a lot of the places where we read our media. But it's, it is worth remembering, as you said up front, that there is a really stark division between, I would say, the West and the rest, as you kind of put it, on the war, where the West increasingly thinks of this war as one between two systems, which I personally think is the right discussion. I think it's very much a war between a democracy and an autocracy. It's not just one of these small regional wars based on ancient history or anything like that. As I, But I think that is generally how countries in the global south are thinking about it. They're thinking about the war as more of a regional one and something of a small one, and they don't understand why the West is necessarily so fixated on it. So Biden's rhetoric is smart, and I think it's right, and I'm on board with it personally. Uh, But the ongoing question to me is, how do you get the global south on board? And the broader question, I've been thinking about this a lot, is, how can you rally so effectively for democracy abroad as Biden did with his, this kind of speech in Warsaw when it doesn't seem like your own systems are working particularly well at home? So just, just as an example, I was recently in London for about nine days. I used to live in England. I was in London for about nine days promoting the book because uh, my book came out there first. And I spoke with, with policymakers, media people, think tankers, uh, both the labor and Tories. And there's just this real sense in Britain of things not working and of democracy not working. And certainly they're going through a bit of a crisis economically and perhaps politically in more so of a way than the United States or or than Germany. 
But trust in democracy is way down across just about every democracy, advanced democracy. We're not only talking the West. I mean, it's very easy to look at January 6th or to look at Brexit and say, okay, well, I understand why there's some disdain or some frustration in the US or the UK. But trust in government numbers are way down in South Korea. They're way down in Japan. And I think it's one of those ongoing questions where as Biden talks to rally the world around, rally the democracies around liberalism in, in standing up for Ukraine, there's this question of, well, does the fight for democracy really start at home or does it start abroad? And clearly, you kind of have to manage both is the obvious is the obvious trade-off. But my question is, how much does the White House kind of think, well, we really need to get our own house in order and help Europe and help Northeast Asia get their own houses in order to make sure that our system is simply attractive enough and strong enough that democracies in the global south are going to get on board? Right. Well, I, I, I think that that is definitely the big question. And I think that's something we're going to really dig deep into today. Um, and I think that ties into something. There's a portion of, of Biden's speech in Warsaw that I wanted to to kind of read out that I thought stood out to me. And I think that relates a bit to what you were just saying, which is, OK, so I'm reading from Biden's speech here right now. It says when Russia invaded, it wasn't just Ukraine being tested. The whole world faced the test for the ages. Europe was being tested. America was being tested. NATO was being tested. All democracies were being tested. And the question we faced were as simple as they were profound. Would we respond or would we look the other way? And, you know, when I hear something like that, I think in many ways those questions are still being asked. Right. And and also, we're, as we saw later this week, I mean, those questions are or that response rather is still being tested. Um, and I think that this was really on display when we look at the Munich Security Conference over the weekend. And I think in particular, um, Wang Yi, who is China's most senior ranking foreign policy official, he made quite a mark there, in in my opinion. Um, and he wrapped up just in advance that what was, I think, a fairly successful tour of Europe. And then he took some big swings at the United States while he was in Munich. And he really seemed to hammer home this message that we often hear out of Beijing. And I think maybe reflects a bit of that mood that you were just alluding to, Charles, you know, which is this idea of perhaps there's Western decline. This, this Western democratic model is outdated. And it's also one that's kind of fueled on quite a bit of hypocrisy. So, I mean, Charles, what do you make of what we saw in, in Munich and how does it relate to this you know, broader theme we're talking about? Sure. I mean, I think the interesting bit of Munich and thinking about Wang Yi specifically is you can kind of see through him the two competing impulses in the Chinese government right now, where there's this pragmatic focus on attracting back far, attracting more foreign capital after two and a half years of zero COVID and basically kind of cozying up to the West once again to say, well, we want we want investors from the US, we want investors from France, we want investors from the UK. And that's imperative one. And imperative two is this fierce nationalism that seemingly has come to the fore under Xi Jinping, most, mostly. And those two impulses don't really fit with one another. And you see it with Wang Yi, where he meets with Olaf Scholz and Emmanuel Macron and says, we'll fully restart exchanges, we'll work on climate change, we'll work on free trade, and then refuses to rule out not invading Taiwan. He basically goes in this fiery anti-US rant that it's not going to be well received. I mean, certainly France and Germany have their own frustrations with the United States, but they're not going to get on board with the same type of anti-U.S. rhetoric that Wang Yi and other Chinese officials are expressing. So it's reflective to me of the difficulty China has managing these two impulses. And the Russia bit here 
is really interesting because Wang Yi has tried to Wang Yi and Chen Gong, the new foreign minister of China, and Xi Jinping himself have tried to position China as something of a neutral peacemaker with regard to the war. He, you know, Wang met with his Ukrainian counterpart in Munich before heading to to Russia. But I think this image, this image of Wang Yi having such a warm visit in Moscow, specifically with Putin just days before the one year anniversary of the invasion, is really poor optics and strikes me as a miscalculation from the Chinese perspective of you just had a fairly successful charm offensive where, according to Beijing, at least France was going to join the next Belt and Road Forum. I mean, it seems like that was an overall successful trip. But to show up in Moscow to meet with Putin and to take such a hawkish line in Russia, I think is something of an own goal for China. And even more so if she actually goes to Moscow in the next few weeks, next few months. Right. Which, will... which, sorry to interrupt, but that, yeah. that that's also right. That's something that's very much in the cards. I mean, we've been hearing this since the winter. And I think that we're seeing, you know, what, maybe sometime in the spring, April, May, she could be in Moscow. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Putin alluded to it today in his meeting with with Wang Yi, basically said, we're looking forward to to the trip of the PRC president. And as much as those those optics are really negative, if you're thinking about China's charm offensive in the West, and even to some extent, I mean, when when I'm talking West, I'm not just talking Western Europe and North America, you're thinking much of Central Europe, with the exception of Hungary, perhaps. Um, And I think the ongoing question, and mostly from a U.S. perspective, but also U.K. and E.U., is is Russia or is China arming Russia in any way? Because that has been repeatedly said to be the red line, both by EU and US officials. And it seems likely to me that outright proof of that, that China has been providing Russia with military assistance, would almost surely prompt US, EU, maybe Australia and Japanese sanctions. Japanese maybe a little less so, but it would it would totally reverse what seemed to be a fairly successful charm offensive. So I, I would give, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about scores for, for long years, scores for this Chinese effort, it's like a five out of 10, a six out of 10. I mean, from their perspective, I think it could have been up to a seven or eight if you leave out the Moscow trip and leave out some of the anti-US US bombast. So I, I'll, I'll leave it there for now. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's it's a really interesting point, right? I'm, And, you know, you kind of, I think, phrased it earlier, you called it a bit of a an own goal or, or or something like that, which I think is is something we've seen a lot in Chinese diplomacy. I mean, in all diplomacy, but especially on the Chinese front, when it, we see this difference in how to communicate with, you know, more democratic, open countries and how they kind of deal on the diplomatic front with uh, autocratic countries, it seems to be, you know, receive a bit of a different reception. And I think that's something that that ties in quite nicely, I think, in the, the premise of your book, you know, which is getting into this, you know, this world order separated by democracies and autocracies. Um, and I think it's also something that was put on display today. You know, there's this uh, a new poll that I came across that I thought was quite interesting um, by the European Council of Foreign Relations, um, where they polled 15 countries across the world um, about their attitudes on the war in Ukraine. And, I, you know, I think it gets back in. It shows this very deepening gulf between you know North America, Europe, the West, and then the rest of the world. So while views are hardening towards Russia for the war and support for Ukraine is is unifying in a lot of ways across the West, for instance, um, in the poll, it was 77% of Britain and 71% of the US now say they view Russia as an adversary and there are majorities 
across the West that show for continued support of sanctions against Russia and also large uh, percentage, which I thought was interesting, who say that they view this war as part of a wider democratic struggle. Um, but then, of course, when we look on the flip side of that, you know, it's a very different story. You know, more than 70 percent um, of respondents in China, India, Turkey say that they see Russia as stronger today than before the invasion. And they also say that they see Moscow as a strategic partner or even an ally. Um, so, you know, what do you make of all of this, Charles? Is it is it really this, you know, United West and the West or and the rest? Sorry. Um, and, you know, what does this this gap tell us about where we might be headed for the world? Sure. I think the gap is not so much reflective of the war itself. I think the gap is more so reflective of a conflation of liberalism and the liberal world order or the rules based order with the version of liberal capitalism and kind of unfettered capitalism we've had for maybe 20, 30 years, where I think if you go and talk to policymakers in Indonesia or policymakers in Malaysia or policymakers in South Africa who are of a certain generation, they think when you hear liberal world order, well, they think the 1997-98 Asian financial crisis, or they think 2008. Uh, they think of this kind of U.S.-led system in which there weren't enough safeguards on capital moving so quickly around the world that resulted in, in calamity for them. And I think that's what it really is for developing countries and even somewhere like Hungary to some extent that these countries were promised that by democratizing in the 90s or, or after that and becoming capitalists that they would get really rich. And of course, the opposite kind of happened in, in, in the short term and then maybe they bounced back. But I think that's the kind of frustration is there's this frustration with a liberal economic system that people believe to be very U.S. centric and frankly kind of unregulated in a way that's really negative. And I think people don't, you know, think about Malaysia. They have the whole one MDB scandal with, with Goldman Sachs. Uh, they clearly don't necessarily trust the quote unquote liberal order that allowed that to crop up. So I don't think it's so much. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was I was just going to try to put a, a pit in that. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I think it's right. I mean, there, there there's a lot of, I think, quite legitimate grievances. Right. And, you know, the hypocrisy thing is 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 also perhaps not without merit either. Yeah, no, I think the hypocrisy and this is the way I've kind of phrased it in the book. And, and you know, for folks who, who don't necessarily know me, I mean, I used to be foreign correspondent in Southeast Asia and I did a lot of work on basically the ramifications of the Vietnam War beyond just Vietnam, but in Cambodia and Laos. And it's really bleak. And you can kind of see, I think, very visibly the ramifications of not including a country in the rules-based order. So that's how I would think about some of the mistakes like Iraq or Afghanistan or Cambodia or Vietnam, where basically the United States said, well, these are not developed advanced democracies, so we're not going to grant them the privileges of the rules-based order. Whereas, of course, the United States could have as many disagreements as we want with South Africa or, or France, and we're never going to invade one of those countries. You're never going to bomb one of those countries because you say, well, they're demo they're democratic, they're advanced enough. So they have these rights, these privileges of the liberal order. So part of the argument of my book is basically making sure that we constantly extend that order, not only to countries that look like us, but actually countries everywhere. And it's this kind of interesting point that I, I wanted to make very clear in a book that is called Defeating the Dictators. I mean, it's all about beating back autocracy. 
That doesn't mean the United States, that doesn't mean the West can't have any relationship with autocracies. I mean, there are more autocracies in the world than there are democracies. The idea that we can sit in Washington or sit in Brussels and say, well, we're not going to deal with them doesn't, doesn't make any sense practically. But it's making sure that those relationships are in your benefit. It's making sure that the United States, say, wields its relationship with Vietnam to produce tangible economic benefits for the United States. And something similar can go for, for Brussels' relationship with Cambodia or something. something right, like that. right, right. And the overall framing of the book is actually mostly focused on internal reforms. It's this notion that basically when you go to talk to someone in Vietnam or Singapore, Malaysia, or even somewhere like South Africa, countries that are either, you know, functional autocracies like Vietnam or Singapore or kind of quasi-functional democracies, there is no longer this notion of Western democracy as a model. There's no longer this sense that the U.S., the U.K., France, Germany, even Japan kind of have it right. There's no, there's no sense that we have the only path to prosperity. Rather, if you're sitting in Vietnam or you're sitting in Singapore, you're going to say, well, look, look at China or look at our own models. I mean, when you talk to people in the developing world, everyone wants to be like Singapore or they want to be like the UAE. They want to be like these small, advanced autocracies that are very rich, seemingly have no political disruptions and can just get things done. I mean, that's the perception, whereas the U.S. has January 6th, the U.K. has Brexit and three prime ministers in three months. So the notion of the book is basically making sure that we can reform that rules-based order abroad to account for the rise of the developing world by starting at home. Because if the United States or the UK or Germany aren't strong enough internally, A, to serve as a model, and B, that we don't function well enough to essentially ensure that people like Trump, who are was anti-NATO and kind of anti this whole rules-based order notion, if, if we don't function well enough to fend off their election, it's really hard to imagine that we can actually advance democracy in, in the long term. All right. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I first want to say that um, I'm going to open up the floor pretty soon. Um, I see Peter S. has his hand raised. And Peter, I'm going to come to you in just one second. But just also to anyone else listening live with us right now who wants to ask a question, please raise your hand and Charles and I will come to you. So, Peter, um, you have the floor. Please let us know what's on your mind. Yeah, thank you very much for the space. Um, I think probably the biggest problem with a democracy is uh, they always say if you want to get nothing done, form a committee. And the problem we have is that because of our democracy, people have different opinions and somebody says we must do A, somebody says no, we've got to do it B, somebody says C, somebody says D, and it goes round and round and round in the circle before a decision actually gets made, and then it's usually a watered-down decision. Authoritarian regimes don't care about the masses or, or care very little about their opinion, so they tend to come to decisions quickly, which might be the wrong decisions, but somebody makes a decision. And I think that is very apparent in Europe. Do I see kind of um, this big, big problem with China? I, actually, I don't. I can I can see there's going to be more positives than negatives uh, with China's involvement, and I'll tell you why. Um, number one is China is very dependent on the West. And I say the West, the USA and Europe specifically, 
more than 50% of his, its economy is dependent on the West. Um, if you look at its economy with uh, Russia, it's 4%, uh, and it's mainly a gas station. Uh, the other point here is that China agriculture has done very badly because of a drought, and also uh, China has had big problems with COVID. So their economy is suffering, but they are not uh, an authoritarian regime. So, so, so Peter, got... sorry if I, if I can interrupt here. I mean, are, yeah. are, uh, is your question, you're, you're saying that yeah. you don't think that China is such yeah, perhaps I, yeah. a threat to kind of the, you're saying the democratic kind of norms or things like that? Or, or, or what is it that you're... I, I think you're it's a fractious... fractious codependent relationship between the West and China. But China has stated a number of times they are totally opposed to any nuclear uh, weapons being used. And I think they might have a positive influence um, with Russia over stopping anybody doing something stupid. Uh, secondly, if they started supplying heavy weapons to Russia, I'm not talking about little bits and pieces, but ending heavy like long-range precision missiles to Russia. That would be a green light for the USA to say, right, well, we've got to supply them to Ukraine. So I, I think there's going to be this continual battle between the two, but I'm not an expert, so I'd like to hear uh, your expert's opinion on those points. I okay. just think that Right. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Peter. I, I really appreciate the question. I think there, there's a bunch to chew on there. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll offer some thoughts here. And then, you know, Charles, um, I'm curious to get uh, what you think. Um, you know, in general, I, I think the nuclear weapons thing, obviously, yes, in the context that China is saying it, it's certainly noteworthy, especially, you know, as we hear, you know, Putin see, or see Putin, you know, rattling the, the nuclear saber, so to speak. But also, I, I think it's worth saying that this is, you know, pretty standard Chinese talking points that they are against the use of nuclear weapons. They always say this. They always have been. And I know one point of criticism that I've heard from some people, especially when I've spoken with with sources in Brussels, you know, is that, OK, this is a thing, you know, like China is literally just repackaging its old rhetoric and getting patted on the back for saying something that is actually completely unoriginal and actually doesn't really mark a policy departure on their on their end at all. Um, and I think that at least from some of the reporting that I personally have done, also, again, speaking with folks in the EU, is I think that that's a bit of, you know, that China has said, Wang Yi proposed that Xi Jinping will unveil uh, a Chinese, you know, peace plan for the war in Ukraine that they'll announce it on Friday, which is the one year anniversary of the war. Um, and there seems to be a lot of skepticism about that, in large part because there's some thoughts that this will be a, um, you know, again, a repackaging of just things that China said before that doesn't really offer a lot and that it could perhaps be a smokescreen for Russia to, you know, um, you know, protect the Russians on the various diplomatic bodies and, and give them some cover, so to speak. So I think there's a lot of reason to be to be careful about that and maybe not buy into all the, the talking points. But Charles, I mean, how, how do you how do you view all of this, especially this this Russia China relationship, as well as some of the you know, we got a lot of news this week, whether it was, you know, Blinken floating the the prospect of the Chinese potentially providing lethal aid. We had the peace plan. Um, and then obviously we had Wang Yi's visit to Moscow. So so what are you seeing, Charles? Sure. Thanks, Reed. And thanks, Peter, for the question. I think the, the opening bit, your discussion 
of autocracies being able to make decisions faster than democracy or that kind of that perception that Britain or the U or the US are going to struggle to get things done because we debate and it's all politics. It's a really interesting point because something I've raised in the book and it's come up in other discussions about the book is efficiency can actually be a curse of autocracy if the decision by the strongman at the top is a poor one. So, of course, when Xi Jinping makes a decision, there aren't many people around him to challenge him and say that it's a bad decision. There are no guardrails really stopping him from making a decision and pursuing a policy, which is how you end up with nearly two years of zero COVID that severely hampered the Chinese economy and then basically left left the country totally unprepared for a real opening to COVID, which resulted in some million people dead in a month. So I think I would say that, sure, it certainly seems like Washington and Brussels may not be able to get things done so rapidly, but that that can actually save us from really bad decisions at times where it is one of the points of the way the U.S. system is set up is basically decisions are actually supposed to be made slowly and radical change is supposed to be hard. So I think there's this ironic bit where efficiency can really be a curse of autocracy and slow decision making can actually really work really well for democracies. And in terms of just China, Russia on the, on the second point, yeah, I mean, it, this we are still locked in a codependent relationship. Nobody serious is saying that the United States is going to full, or the West broadly is going to fully decouple from China. There are there's way too much economic engagement. I think it's more so a question of where does the West draw the line on engagement with China, saying, well, which technologies are so sensitive that we don't want China to have them? No one's saying the U.S. shouldn't sell fridges to China or we shouldn't sell consum really consumer goods to China. It's more about where do you draw the line on some dual use technology and all that. And yeah, China is still dependent on the West. They're dependent on the Western economic system, the Western financial system, and Western technology. But that's for now. And you can see it in Chinese rhetoric where Beijing is very focused on making themselves self-reliant. It's not entirely clear to me if that is doable. I mean, when you are a closed autocratic system, innovation is going to be much harder, which means it will be much more difficult for China to get the semiconductor technology it needs to not basically use Taiwanese or Japanese or South Korean or American technology. But my sense there is once she feels that China is fairly self-reliant is when you could see more rash decision making in terms of foreign policy. I mean, that's when I'd be really concerned about any type of Taiwan contingency, because for now, the idea of China doing something rash over Taiwan would basically mean China gets hit with all the sanctions that Russia was hit with and more and more sanctions. And China doesn't really have the oil or the, the gas that is good, basically that developing countries are going to continue buying to keep its economy propped up. So only once China feels like it doesn't need the West is when you could basically perhaps break out of that codependency with China making some unwise decision that ruptures the relationship. But I do kind of think we're stuck in this tense codependency where no one seriously wants to rupture ties fully and no one seriously wants conflict. But the U.S. strategy and the broader Western strategy is increasingly about containing some type of Chinese technological development and Chinese geopolitical power. And of course, Beijing is not just going to kind of sit there and, and take that. So it is an ongoing question. And with regard to China and Russia, I think China might be a somewhat helpful player there, but really only moderately. I mean, I think the best they're going to do is basically talk Putin off the ledge of using nuclear weapons. 
But even then, I'm not sure how successful China is going to be on that front because it certainly seems like Beijing was surprised by the invasion in the first place. I mean, she she met with Putin maybe two weeks, a week and a half before, and by all indications, he did not know an invasion was coming because he didn't want to make. If he if he did know an invasion was coming, I doubt he would have met with Putin because this this was a year ago. He does not want to be seen as so anti United States, as so anti West, as so pro Russia when there's not so much practically to gain from that. So, right, and and Charles, if I can hop in there, yeah, I mean, I think that's also been a, an interesting thing in especially in the last. I don't know, month or so, especially since the new year. Um, I mean, the amount of Chinese officials um, deciding to speak up now. I mean, you know, this is always on, on background. You know, it's, it's, there's no name attached to this. But to, to speak with, you know, Western Papers, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, and to really kind of sell like, you know, we did not know that this invasion was coming. This is not the info we were told. And, you know, even I think there was one senior Chinese official who told the Financial Times, you know, even said, we think Putin is crazy, um, which I think also kind of illustrates, you know, as much of, um, you know, there is this, you know, as Wang Yi said in Moscow, a rock solid relationship. But I mean, there, there's quite a few hollow pockets there. And maybe, you know, those ties that bind maybe aren't as, as strong as sometimes they appear. Or, you know, especially as they, they kind of uh, are, are shown to, you know, at press conferences and in these big statements um, that we get from, from Beijing and Moscow. Um, all right, Peter, um, thanks a lot. Um, all right, we're going to move on to the next question now. Uh, Rami, I see you have your hand raised up. Um, yeah, uh, the, the floor is yours. Please, please uh, introduce yourself and, and let us know what your, what your question is. Yeah, just a quick question. I mean, uh, we see China is an autocratic government, but it's been really successful economically in the last 30 years or so. It's managed to take 600 million people out of poverty, and its economy is still growing really fast, even though it's bigger than the EU. Um, and whenever we try to make a autocracy to democracy, it just turns into a chaos. I can't think of any successful country that has it automatically, like the you know, grassroots people have decided to become democratic uh, when there's, there's an external intervention. It's always been a, a mess. And, you know, I just feel the Western world would be better just to leave the autocracies to themselves. And if the people themselves organically wanted to become democratic, that's fine. But whenever we intervene, it just created a worse situation uh, than they were under an autocratic government. What's our, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, it's a great question, Rami. I mean, Charles, I, I'm going to turn this over to you. I mean, as the man who just, uh, you know, published a book, kind of digging into this very, very topic. I mean, I'm, I'm curious, you know, how, how do you view uh, what Rami just raised? Sure, Rami, I don't actually disagree. I, I think the big promise of the book is actually expl- that's explicitly non-interventionist. There, there is no call for moving into to Vietnam or to Singapore and trying to make them democratize in the next five, 10 years. That's not the point, the point of the book. The point of the book is basically making sure that democracies work well enough and that we deliver well enough on our promises to make clear that de- democratic systems offer a better life than autocracies do. And the argument there is that by doing that and by making our own systems functional enough that we can basically fend off threats to democracy at home while serving as a model for countries abroad, we are more likely to see a more democratic world in the longer term. You're more likely to have policymakers or intellectuals in places like Hanoi or even in Singapore or, you know, in other places around the world, basically think, well, maybe this autocratic system we've had so far has worked to get us to middle income, 
but it hasn't actually gotten us across the line. It's not going to make us rich like the United States or like Japan or the UK or whatnot. So that's the argument of the book. So I agree with you that it's not about explicitly intervening and actually overthrowing governments. I mean, certainly not. It's more about showing people everywhere as they believed 30 years ago and maybe even 20 years ago that democracy offers the best path to prosperity rather than autocracy does. Uh, all right, Rami, I hope that uh, we we answered your question there. Um, you know, Charles, I, I, I want to ask you something that's been on my mind uh, quite a lot. Um, you know, if I think, you know, go back just a couple of years, you know, okay, you already raised something like January 6th. Um, obviously, there, you know, during the Trump presidency, um, you know, Brexit, all of these kind of things, there was a lot of a lot of talk about, you know, Western decay, democratic backsliding. Um, and but I think, you know, especially in the last year, um, there seems to be a little more swagger, perhaps, um, in, you know, every democracy step. Um, and I think this is, you know, in part by the response to Ukraine. Um, and um, so I'm just curious, you know, like, is this a real turnaround? Is this a mirage? I mean, how how big of a deal is is this war in Ukraine and the Western response to it, um, especially for this kind of, you know, future orientation as you're talking about, you know, perhaps it is going to be, you know, the democracies versus the autocracies, the Russias and Chinas of the world against the, you know, Americas and Britons. What do you think? I think it's it's kind of a I have a little bit of a cop out answer and that I think it matters, but I also think it is a little bit of a mirage where up front, it certainly matters that Joe Biden is president of the United States right now and not Donald Trump and that U.S. leadership broadly around the world is considered competent at the baseline, considered competent and fairly predictable, even if leaders in Riyadh or in Singapore might not like the democracy versus autocracy framing at least they understand where it's coming from. And at least they understand that this administration is competently staffed and they don't have to worry about policymaking by tweet. That alone is a benefit, as as have been elections elsewhere that you kind of saw the fears about the rise of autocracy in Brazil. I mean, you saw Bolsonaro lose. I mean, that, those, are, those are all positive things. But I would hardly say trends in India are particularly good. I would hardly say trends in Indonesia are particularly good. You can make the same case about a few. I mean, Hungary is, I would argue, now an autocracy in the center of Europe and Brussels has fairly little to do or say about it. So it's mixed where I think it's actually been a fairly positive performance in the really rich, advanced economies. When you think about the United States primarily or even you think about Japan uh, or certainly Germany, those are all good things. But I would hardly say that democracy has had a particularly amazing year. I mean, particularly in the developing world. Again, the the India stuff is concerning. Indonesia is trending towards an election that is going to be really messy, to say the least. Thailand is not a democracy right now and is going to have a May election. And it's a little hard to imagine that going super well. So I would say it's a very mixed bag here, where certainly democracies are in a better position than we were on January 6, 2021. But that was a really low bar. Uh, Peter, I think your your microphone is not muted. Um, all right. Th- thank you, Charles. Um, all right. We have one more question here. One more live question uh, from Hao Yang Sun. Um, please introduce yourself and curious what's on your mind, what you what you want to want to know. Yeah. 
，我是中国人，我说中文的。I'm Chinese. I、uh, that's why I can totally understand China autocracy, totalitarian. For me, very easy to understand. One thing I want to ex- explain. Uh, I know Russia and China is evil, but I just want to give you some different idea. China is very evil. Russia may be evil, but extremely evil is China. A lot of just like、uh, Canadian U.S. guy didn't understand. I can tell you, China problem is not about Chinese government or Communist Party. China have two thousand years torture, autocracy, terrible. You know, just like.、Uh, You cannot say China is autocracy, but autocracy level is different. For example, dictator, different dictator at different level. For example, just like、uh, Roman Caesar, Augusto is one thousand years ago Roman is dictator autocracy, but level is different. For example, five hundred years ago is、uh, just like what, what they call it, Louis Louis fifteen, right? France. This guy is dictator. I am king, but he had bottom line. China history two thousand years, no bottom line. I can give you more example. China always China just like、uh, like to torture each other.、Um, how, how, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, what, what is um what is what is it you you wanted to ask about? I mean, I I'm, I think I get a little bit. You're saying this is yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. very tough regime, but but、yeah. but what what is it you want to know? Russia can change, maybe Putin die. Russia fifty, seventy years. Russia can change, accept democracy. China never ever accept democracy. Forget about it. China never, two thousand year history. China never accept democracy. That's my so, so so that's kind of your question. Is yeah, could yeah, China yeah. actually become democracy? You you clearly seem to think that the answer is no. But never,、uh, never, never, never. Okay. Well, I, I I'm curious. I mean, Charles, Charles, um, you know, what do you think about this? This is a, an interesting question getting raised here. Sure. I mean, I think I would say two things. That yeah, of course, all dictators and all autocracies are not the same. There is a very big difference between Joseph Stalin and Lee Kuan Yew. I mean, there is no question in my mind that, of course, you think about someone like Stalin, who basically robbed the country of its riches and tortured people for you know forty, fifty years. Whereas Lee Kuan Yew certainly did repress people in Singapore, but left the country better than he found it. And I think if you polled most Singaporeans, and frankly, if you polled most Intellectuals in the West is Lee Kuan Yew a good guy or a bad guy? They would say good guy. So I think that that is a good point for sure. That all dictators are not are not built the same. And then on the second point, could China become a democracy? I mean, I don't see any structural reason why not. I, I think it's important that when people in the West talk about democracy, we make it very clear that democracy is not a Western conceit alone. That we make it very very clear that that countries. That are not European, that are not North American, can become very successful, very prosperous democracies, and that it's not just something limited to Americans or Europeans. So certainly, I don't think China is anywhere near becoming a democracy. I mean, the the PRC government, the CCP government, is very solid in power, solidly in power, and seems very unlikely to fall anytime. Soon, but in the longer term, I don't think any country. Is, I don't think it's impossible for any country to become a democracy. Thanks a lot, Charles.、Um, it's an interesting answer, Piotr、um, Kurzen. I, I see that you have a question here.、Um, so、um, I think this will be the final one that we'll be taking to open up the floor. But、um, what would you like to know?、Uh, thanks, Reid. Always enjoy the、um, the radio、uh, for Europe pieces.、Um, Charles, thanks for your time.、Uh, my question is concerning a little bit more this.、Uh, 
the political spectrum. Now, I'm not sure I agree with you that Hungary is a full autocracy. Uh, I, I would call it more a liberal democracy, but it's certainly going that way. But more, my, my question is more, how do we um, counterbalance against the countries that are sort of teetering on the periphery of democracies and autocracies, right? Turkey's definitely been around that area for a while. We've got Saudi Arabia. That's not really a democracy at all, but we have to sort of, we have to deal with our, our frem- frenemies, right? So how do we... How do we, um, one, counterbalance against countries that are engaging with other countries that are definitely autocracies, like, you know, more countries want to join the BRICS or something like that. But second, how do we try and encourage more countries to uh, entertain democratic ideas? You know, there was the successful election in Kenya, for example. Um, And how do we get more African states to follow that model instead of, say, uh, an autocratic one? If you've got any uh, policy ideas. Thank you. Sure. I think that's really an interesting question. So I said this at the beginning, and I think it's worth restating, where when you think about autocracies around the world, and you mentioned Saudi Arabia, I would think about Singapore, Vietnam, those are the countries that are actually very close partners of the United States. And I would say the irony is that, and in the West broadly, that they are broadly supportive of the rules-based order abroad, in the sense that Vietnam wants a strong U.S kind of run liberal order because they don't want China to take territory, further territory in the South China Sea. They don't want a Chinese intervention in the north of Vietnam. And they want the rules-based order that allows for or basically ensures territorial integrity, but they're anything but liberal at home. And I think making sure that we're engaging with countries like that is really critical because they get half of the equation right if that makes sense, where you have liberalism at home and liberalism abroad and countries like Vietnam and not so much Saudi Arabia, but certainly Singapore, certainly to some extent the UAE, or I think about Oman, small autocracy next to the UAE and next to Yemen, they do support some semblance of the liberal order abroad. So certainly democracy should have strong relationships with them. We should work with them when it's in our benefit, but we should make sure that we're not sacrificing our values to do so. So I think a strong example of that has been the Biden administration's approach to Saudi Arabia, where basically not only are the Saudis not helping the U.S. on a variety of things that we actually need them for, namely energy, they also assassinated a U.S. green card holding journalist. And the Biden administration didn't stay quiet. They didn't stay stay silent. They didn't basically just maintain that relationship as normal. And I think that was a wise way to handle this, whereas on the flip side of things, when the U.S. meets Vietnam, certainly we raise human rights concerns a bit more privately. But because Vietnam is a trusted partner on the international scale, we don't so broadly and so publicly criticize them because we don't want to embarrass them. But we do make our concerns known privately. So I think that is one way to think about engaging autocracies is to make sure that when we do so, we're doing it in our own interest and we're not sacrificing our values entirely. And In terms of democratizing or kind of spreading the model of democracy on two countries on the periphery, I think the big point here is making sure that democracies are working well enough at home to serve as a model where we want someone in Kenya or someone in Nigeria or even someone in Egypt or someone in Malaysia to say, well, I don't think my system is working. I don't think my my quasi 
democratic or quasi autocratic system is working. And I also don't want to be like the UAE because of X, Y, and Z. I don't want to be like China because of X, Y, and Z. I want to be like the United States or I want to be like the United Kingdom or I want to be like Japan because look at how innovative they are. Look at how dynamic their societies are. Look at how powerful and how rich they are. And I think making sure that we speak to those imperatives is really critical because I, I do think there's a there's a tendency of people in the intelligentsia in Brussels and Washington to sometimes forget that most people are focused on economic development rather than any kind of concepts of values. And for them, prosperity is about more money in their pockets. And if the people promising to put more money in the pockets are promising to emulate Singapore or to emulate the UAE and seem to be doing so successfully, that type of system is going to win international, win domestic support. So I think making sure that democracies can very clearly offer the most obvious path to prosperity is the way that in the longer term, you get more democracies in places on the periphery, as you mentioned. Charles, uh, thanks a lot. Piotr, thanks a lot for your question. Um, and thank you to everybody um, who participated today. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to my China Eurasian newsletter, which comes out every other Wednesday. I'll be back in two weeks. Until then, I'm Reed Standish.